How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Welcome to Black and Gay Back in the Day. We're bringing to life the archive of images of Black LGBTQ plus life in Britain, from the 1970s to the early noughties. Brown skin beauty Fair fine future I'm Mark Thompson. I'm an activist and health promotion specialist and I built this archive with the journalist and writer Jason Okendeya. Deep dark wisdom In this episode, we are looking at a photograph that shows the importance of activism in pushing for change. A black and white photo shows a crowd of people marching together. The foreground of the image shows three black women all wearing glasses and coats. They look as though they are in the middle of chanting. All around them is a procession holding banners and flags, marching down a street lined with brick buildings. We know the group to be members of the Black, Lesbian and Gay Centre. They are marching against Section 28 in the late 1980s. Activism takes many forms. Now, you might think of lobbying governments, marching through the streets or even boycotts. But these days, activism might look different to how it used to. Today, a number of activists are using their platforms as influencers or writers and journalists, raising awareness of issues and calling for action. Fope Ajanaku is one of those people. Looking at this photo and I think the first thing that comes to my mind is this feeling of comfort because you see that no matter the time, like black women will always be out there doing stuff, right? And I look at this photo and if it wasn't like in black and white, this could have been taken five years ago. I could have like done stuff with this these women. Um and it it makes me feel 
it makes me feel comforted with the familiarity of it because, like I said, like black women will always be there behind the scenes in front of the camera, making sure we get to the protest, making sure that we are having the right chance, that they are fun and sassy. But also just it makes me feel sad that we will always have to do this. I don't know. I think um, I'm very excited to talk more about the context of this photo because I know this is um, a photo that was during the Haringey Clause 28 local campaign. And I obviously know about Section 28, a lot of like young queer people do, but I don't know enough about it. So I would love to like learn more. I'm Flopper, pronouns say them, and I'm an organizer slash facilitator, and I work with young people to harness their power to change the world. Google Section 28, which seems obvious, but I'm just going to see what I get. Um, So, Wikipedia says that Section 28 or Clause 28 was a legislative designation for a series of laws across Britain that prohibited the promotion of homosexuality by local authorities. Introduced by Margaret Thatcher, it was in effect from 1988 to 2000 in Scotland and from 1988 to 2003 in England and Wales, which is insane to me because I would have been in year three when it ended. And it's, I don't, obviously, I don't think I have memory of this, but I must have, like, it must have been something that my, my parents would have known about, like, that teachers would have known about. And that means at least, like, three years of my schooling was underneath this, this, like, this governance, which is so wild to me okay in my very quick research i've also found what i think is an actual copy of the local government act from 1988 and it says 2a a local authority shall not a intentionally promote homosexuality or publish material with the intention of promoting homosexuality and b promote the teaching in any maintained school as the acceptability of homosexuality as a pretended family relationship. Which again is so interesting to me because there must have been teachers that were at my school who were probably having to hide so much of themselves and I just didn't even know. Looking at this picture, I guess I'm thankful um, for the work they've done, but also thankful and excited to actually talk to someone who was there doing this work. I know that Femi Ototoji was part of the Section 28 protest movement, and she was also part of the Black Lesbian and Gay Centre. But I think she actually used to work for Haringey Council, so I'm so excited to talk to her some more. Hi Femi, lovely to meet you. How are you? I'm good. It's really good to meet you too. It's amazing. It's amazing to be here with you and I'm very excited to chat with you. I think the first thing I want to ask is like, what does it make you feel to look at this photo? It makes me feel really quite happy because it just reminds me that we can make a difference if we don't, if we don't just lie down and let things happen to us, you know? Can I ask like, what, like, what is the context of this photo? 
Well, the context of this photo is taking place um, in the London Borough of Haringey. And what's going on here is, is a protest against something called Section 28. Now, that's a bit of uh, what was then the Local Government Act, um, which was being passed to, in effect, stop people talking about being, as they were saying at the time, lesbian or gay or, or being in pretended family relationships in schools in Haringey. Um, I was thinking when I looked at the photo, if, like, if it wasn't black and white, I feel like this could be from like last year. It could be from like five years ago, which I think is so interesting. I think it frustrates me in like the one hand that we still do this, but also I feel like that sense of community will always be there. Like when a community, specifically the black community or the black community, queer community has had enough, we will always come together to make some sort of statement and make a lot of noise, which I think is reassuring to me as well. Yeah, I hope that's true. I do feel sometimes that we get a bit fragmented and we uh, put, focus too much on divisions and we should be focusing, focusing on unity. Mm-hmm. So I hope that's true. I think that these, looking back at the pictures like these, just remind us that we should never get complacent. Mm. Because genuinely I was working, I was working as a professional lesbian then, basically. Um, I, was, I had a, a job where I was paid to be working for the best interests of my community. And yet, I mean, I thought that was it. It was done. It was local government had taken it on. And we were like, we thought we'd sorted it. And then out of nowhere, this piece of legislation came careering at us. I mean, the whole thing only took about a year and a bit from the time we first heard about it to the time it reached the statutes. This picture reminds me that we need to be ever vigilant. Can you talk a bit more about what it felt like in that year of a half of like the when the legislation came through? What was the strategy there? I think the strategy at the time, even though we didn't necessarily think of it as that, was let's frighten the hell out of everybody <laughs> by really overemphasizing just how bad this could be. We were saying it's going to be terrible. No one's going to be able to watch any Oscar Wilde plays. No teacher's going to be, ever be able to support any young lesbian or gay man. We'll all get sacked. It's going to be hateful. Um, the idea being that people would say this is so appalling it can't possibly be allowed to um, to be passed. That A, that didn't work, but B, all our dramas around what it would be like didn't come to fruition but nonetheless that was that was our first approach I think the other where there was a bit of a game plan was to mobilize the community to to use their voice um, with the local authority initially and then of course to government centrally I would love to talk more about what does it mean to mobilise the community. So a lot of the work I do with young people is based on the tradition around community organising. And I feel like a lot of that understanding of how important it is to have a community behind you is like lost in activism today. I think a lot of people only see like you have big numbers of protests or like you have the government. And I think a lot of people miss that you really need to have like your neighbours, the people who like look after your kids, the people like the church, as much as like I'm agnostic, but I feel like the church or like communities like that are hugely important in making any significant change. So when you and your community were mobilising the community, what did that look like? Um, And what were like some of the things you did in order to make sure the community was always with you? We didn't use the phrase as much in the UK then, but as people of colour, we understood that it would be really difficult for us to to mobilise alone. You know, we had... The reason why there was this black, in particular, this black presence around this... Uh, this particular issue around Section 28 was because some people in the community had started saying that our borough's support 
of the lesbian and gay communities at that time was racist. They said it was racist because there weren't the black people and we had a big separate community, a big Greek community, that, that, that we didn't have homosexuality in those communities. And so by supporting LGBT issues, the council was being racist. So we had, to, we had this double thing that we we're trying to sort out. Like, no, wait a minute. <laughs> First of all, are you saying that our communities are more homophobic than, than white communities? No. Secondly, we can't afford to just walk away from those communities because there's a lot of racism out there and we need our communities to support us against or with and around the racism. So we can't just wander away and go, sorry, I'm skipping off into the, you know, the pink rainbowy thing. I've got, we, we, we need these people with us. So that was our motivation, challenging the racism within the wider community, but we were also challenging the homophobia within our own communities. I agree with you. It meant very much working with the people that we interacted with on a day-to-day basis. It was great. My job was to go around to the community centres. We had a big um, South Asian community centre. They did lunch every day. I spent a lot of time campaigning in there. So did lunch. That That's where I think real changes always happen. So. Yeah. And they're the people who can sell something. Yes. And I do think that campaigning is as much about sales as it is oh anything God, else. Yes. It's about selling yourself in the first instance. I'm a good thing, aren't I? Won't, well, don't you just love me? So why <laughs> won't you just love what I'm saying? And then it's also about um, selling your concept or your idea. So mm-hmm. if I was training ca- um, activists today, I never got trained, actually. I needed training. But if I were going to support activists today, I think I think that I would be saying to them, you need to be a salesperson. So much of this work as well, like on the flip side, is so skilled. Um, and I think for a very long time, a lot of us, I think also people who are like either racialized or gendered in a certain way, don't realize how much like the work campaigning is skilled work. And so we're doing so much of this labor without recognition, without like pay, with like no sleep. We did all of that. And right. we did it without the internet. For, oh, I don't even want to think about how you did that. <laughs> Briefly earlier, you mentioned something I wanted to ask about this idea of that, you know, communities of colour are more homophobic. And this is, I think, an idea that still persists today. And I wanted to ask, like, where do you think, look, I have my own opinions, but where do you think that, like, that idea comes from? And why do you think it still persists today, even though there's so many, like, queer people of colour, as evidenced by history and as evidenced by now? Yeah, I think that idea that people of colour are more homophobic in the UK, let's, let's stay here for let's now. Let's stay there for now. <laughs> um, I think that comes from the idea that we are seen as being more religious. And our religious communities have a higher profile than sort of comparative uh, communities amongst you know, uh, the white dominant population. So I think it's faith, perhaps, that sometimes um, can be the cause of people's assumptions around that. And I think... Also, we do it ourselves a bit. I mean, I know that, you know, like when you're watching telly and you see a black person on the telly, maybe it's a game show or something, and you're thinking, please be good. Yo, yeah. You know, please it's, don't. It's please, the fear. It's the, please don't mess up. <laughs> because I've, it, it's so interesting because obviously, like, we, we are individuals, but you see, like, a black character and that representation hinges on, like, the, whether you like the show or not. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's what happens a bit with our communities. They're like, look, all right everyone's watching us so dress decently when you go out all right and also don't do that gay thing (laughs) don't do that because what they want is for us to speak nicely dress what you know Mm. certainly that's I mean I'm talking obviously from the people that I 
grew up with it and around. What they wanted was was for us to get a good education, become a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer or maybe an accountant, and to to dress well, present well, speak well, and just be a good thing because this society, as far as say my family and my communities were concerned, this society wants us to fail. Mm. And so they were so determined that we did everything that was as good as it could be. That did not include coming out as a lesbian. Sorry. It's not that they were more homophobic. It was just that they were so concerned that we should be accepted and succeed. I, I, I take what you mean. That is, I think it's a lot of it's fear. I think a lot of it is heavily based in like the fear of like unknown and also the fear of like you don't want after you fought and scraped to live a good and like, and this is in quotation, dignified life in the UK, you want your children to also have that. So seeing your child putting themselves even more at risk in a world or society that already wants them to fail, I think that would be very, very scary. And I know my mom is a deep example of that. I remember I went to like heaven many many years ago and this one visibly i would say like femme white uh, person um whether they're like a white gay person or white trans person kept like giving me looks the entire night and i didn't get it until i was in the smoking area and my friend was like oh they think you're straight they think you're intruding on their space and it took me so long to be like oh this isn't our space. This is your space. Nothing has changed. <laughs> I remember turning up with one other black woman, the two of us going to this gay club. And um, the guy on the door said, it's not soul night. Right. Ah! <laughs> yeah. That's a shame. Mm-hmm. I, I think that they got better. Yeah. Now something's happened again. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I feel like there was like, a there is a, a period, but I guess it's like progress isn't linear. It's like cyclical. It ebbs and flows. And so what I think we're seeing is like a deep regression in the community. And I think you mentioned at the beginning, it's very divisive at the moment, which is, I think, we're going to see real problems from that emerging now. But also in the, like, the next five years, and just like organizing groups of community, because I think the queer community or the LGBT plus community is so divisive. People don't, I don't know, I don't know what it is. I think like people arguing and like having some really deep discussions but the goal isn't like freedom for us all still it's like power or like maybe vengeance which i don't know i'm not the one person here to say like you're not allowed that but i think people are so angry i don't i don't know where it's going at the moment i don't feel like there is a tangible community at the moment or a tangible goal yeah or tangible goal i don't know at the moment but that also could be like this country is just miserable (laughs) so everyone's miserable a little while ago, when I first heard about monkeypox, I felt this little, first of all, a feeling of fear that, oh, no, here we go again. The government's mm. going to start with the whole AIDS thing again. It's going to be hateful. And then I thought, yeah, but we really came together around AIDS. I mean, we really did. Maybe we can catch this, you know, bring a bit more unity to. I do think we have actually seen, in contradiction of what I just said, I think we have seen rallying around monkeypox. I feel like there was a really big gap in terms of knowledge. Like, no one knew what was happening. But I remember seeing loads of tweets from, like, black gay men, specifically, um, I think Jason Odekunde was, like, tweeting quite a bit, like, here's what to do. Mm. And then, like, the amount of people who were getting vaccinations in, like, 24 hours because of that was, like, amazing to see. So I feel like there has definitely a move to like the organizing space onto like the online world. Exactly it. And that's what I meant about it's really upsetting, mm-hmm. but it also kind of gives us something around which we can coalesce. And that's why pictures like this are so important, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yeah. Because they remind us that when we work together, 
when we bring all our power, you know, to the front, we can actually achieve change. You know, we we resisted Section Twenty Eight; it did make it onto, you know, into the law, but we were also able to continue the campaign and get mm. that rescinded. And that, I think, is why whoever wonderful, whichever wonderful person took that picture, I'd like to say thank you because that's why it's so important to have this stuff recorded so and important. available for people to see. I think it's quite interesting about what makes an activist, to think about what makes an activist. I was also going to ask, like, do you consider yourself an activist? Because I wouldn't, I would, I'm not sure if I would use the, the word anymore. <laughs> so I have embraced the word activist for most of my grown-up life, both in the sort of community sense and political sense, but also just in a, like a work environment sense. If something something has to happen I will be the doer I will grab the thing that needs to be grabbed and physically try and make something happen there yeah I'm happy to see myself as an activist do you think of yourself as an activist I don't know I feel like and I think this is this might be like a generational thing or like because of the word how the word has like evolved to mean maybe something slightly different like we have people who call themselves activists who I wouldn't necessarily say are doing the work I I think this the word doesn't make sense but like influencer activists I don't understand how you can be an influence. I don't understand how you can be an ethical influencer, first of all. Like, I don't understand how those, those two things work in tandem. I mean, maybe it's just spreading information, but it's also building their own platform, which I think is, like, goes against a lot of the work that should be doing as an activist. So I feel like maybe I've shied away from that word in, like, past years. Like, I used to do a lot of, like, speeches, like, rallies of 500 people. I used to, like, go to, like, Westminster, Whitehall, and do quite a lot of these very, like, I would say very stereotypical activist things. Now I don't do that anymore. I've shied away from calling myself an activist. And I think maybe I use maybe the words around like organizer or campaigner just because they, they fit to the specifics of what I'm doing. Um, but I have also, to ask you, I have to ask you, was that a conscious decision to move away from that kind of I, I don't, platform? I mean, literally move away from the platform. I think so. Where, so I worked for the NUS as Black Students Officer, which I used to call basically I was, you know, the head girl for the entire country. So I represented every single uh, Black, Asian, African, Caribbean and ethnic minority student in higher education and further education and apprenticeships in the entirety of the UK. Which means I was representing hundreds and thousands of people. And the role no longer exists for myriad of reasons i think because i had such a hard time in this role because you're, you're the job literally is the end racism in education yeah. which is r- ridiculous oh, within your term within well not within my term but it's the <laughs> continue but it's like you know you start your term and it's like what's the goal End racism which you know you're never going to do so you're already like having this like idea that like by the time i end this i know i would not have like set out what i want to do Every week, have a call from a parent whose, like, child has been harassed or, like, get some frantic DM messages from someone on Twitter being like, hi, they threw bananas at me. What do I do? Because there is no structure in the university. So they're getting in contact with someone in London. Like, a real misunderstanding of what my job was, but that was the job. And also on top of that, I would, because obviously I was a public figure, I was getting added all the time. I was getting emails, like really like awful emails in my uh, inbox all the time. This really creative racist stuff, which I thought was like really hilarious. And I think it was just like that kind of like surveillance on you constantly does something to your mind. I feel like when you do a lot of this front facing work from a very young age, it ages you. And I think luckily I was still able to like believe in it. What is it you believe in? What, I, what is it you're 
you're looking for now. I know, I still believe that a better world is possible. Um, what would it look like? I don't know what it looks like because we're building something that doesn't exist. It looks nothing like the world we have at the moment. Um, but I interviewed someone recently and she was like, I believe that freedom is inevitable. And I was like, oh, I love that. I'm going to use it. It's just like this idea like of the world being better. It is not like something that might happen. It is something that will happen. And I think that way of thinking about it has really helped me really come to terms with it. Because I, it, it's just like none of, nothing we're fighting for we're going to see in our lifetime, right? And I've like accepted that we're building a better world for our children, for our children's children. And so like having that love for your community and the community that exists beyond you is what buoys me, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's interesting because I think some of the things that we're fighting for, we are going to see in our lifetime. Really? <laughs> Absolutely. Because I have seen, for example, same-sex marriage. That's very true. I have seen an equal age of consent. I've seen rape in marriage being seen as a, a crime. I believe that it is possible every single day mm. that there will be a change that will make things better. And worse than that, I don't think that freedom is inevitable. You don't think it's inevitable? I think that there always needs to be us. I believe that as well. But I I think the the positions we occupy, or the community we occupy, will always be there. So it's not that I think... We, if we don't do the work, freedom will come. I believe that we will always do this work because we, it's in, it's integral to the, our community, to the love we have for one another, to the love we have of the idea of a new world. I believe that's inevitable. That works. Yeah, that works for me. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. <laughs> I don't know, because my mom, my, as much as like, I disagree with my mom... I feel like, because I'm Nigerian, and it's very much of the Nigerian spirit to be antagonistic, but also to be fighting. Well, that's, I mean, <laughs> when I was saying earlier that I felt like we had this shared culture and shared experience, then, you know, that's it. It's where that culture comes from. My mother is so Yoruba, it's not true, <laughs> you know. And in a way, that's partly what's given me the energy and the skills, mm-hmm. you know, every, my intellect, my commitment all of that stuff comes from from my mother and so much of it is an awful lot of it about that expectation about doing really well is about being from that Nigerian background and it stood me in really good stead it has it has she's made me very culturally agile and I think that's been quite 
important in the selling part of it. I, I agree. I think it's really interesting the way I think about my like Nigerian identity because I always say this to my friends. It's like I have never loved or hated a nation as much as I do Nigeria. No, but no. I would die for Nigeria. Like Nigeria Independence Day, it's like, yes, but also terrible things. <laughs> terrible things this country has happened in this country and it is. But I love being Nigerian. I would not trade it for another day. No. Which I is would. why I never changed my name, even as a child living in Worthing in Sussex, where nobody had ever heard my name before. And it's called, I think I was called Flem halfway through school. <laughs> I was called Floppy. Yeah, you go. <laughs> Floppy um, desk. But I would never, and, and some of my cousins changed their name. I mm-hmm. never, I would never change my name. I want that. When you hear me, you can't mm-hmm. always tell where I come from. You know, people kind of go, oh, where are you from Caribbean? Where are you from? I want that to be upfront because I think it's, it shapes me and it gave me being different that's right it gave me gave me confidence in being different and that gave me confidence to come out later on when I identified as a lesbian because we had to work quite so hard to find our place here I've got used to having to work hard to find a place so that one experience of my cultural identity developed into something that I could use in other aspects of my identity it's nice to hear it in someone else I'm not too bad. How are you doing? I'm doing really well, thank you. You met the wonderful Femi. I did, I did. It was so exciting. It was it was really lovely to meet someone who had like the shared experiences as me, but from like over like 50 years ago. You think so much of your life is unique, but someone else has had these shared experiences and has advice for you, which was really lovely for me. What struck you and stuck with you about your conversation with Femi? I think it was the the shared sense of identity and like both both us being Nigerian and having that song such a strong moral sense of justice and that being tied to our identity of Nigerians. Um, and we had this like really funny moment where it was like no matter where we'll go, we'll always find more Nigerians. And so <laughs> we're so community minded because of that. And that then like guides our own like social justice politics, which I've. I've obviously thought about, but I've never named it. So to, for it to be named like, oh yeah, of course I think about like community organizing in these terms because I grew up in such a huge family across the world. And like she said, no matter where we go, whether it's, you know, London, Lagos or Alaska, you'll always find another Nigerian. So you're talking about the diaspora mm-hmm. kind of connecting, which enables you to do that. So what did you learn about Femi's community organizing that, impressed you I think what was really interesting so obviously I would have been I think primary school when section 28 was repealed so it's something that I knew of but I didn't know that much about so to hear from Femi who was like essentially in the trenches to fight against it was really interesting because it's like when you look at the photo they're protesting that's something that could have happened like three years ago the community rallies together when something is directly affecting us and to know that like they were still doing it and the work continues was really impressive also the fact that Femi was like okay I'm gonna go inside government Mm. to repeal this I was like that's cool very very cool One of the things that's always impressed me about Femi and their kind of engagement is when I look back on an archive, they are very often the only black person and very often the only black woman and femme presenting woman. How did that 
kind of come up in your conversation? How did you think about that? I think it's interesting. So obviously I identify as non-binary and I mm. use they them pronouns. But we had a discussion that even though I would not identify as a woman, the experience of black womanhood is so unique to us as black femmes. I can't like opt out of it. And so, so much of the experience she was talking about of being like a race from like queer circles, not sure whether we fit in like the queer, like white spaces or like the spaces for people of color and feeling at odds with both of them. I also still feel the same experiences. And we had this like funny, like conversation or like uh, similarities of like, I remember I went like clubbing <laughs> and then this guy was like, you're intruding on our space. And Femi told him exactly the same story from when she was young. And it's like, (laughs) everything's the same. And it's bad, but also nothing changes. (laughs) So it was really nice to like, know that no matter where we go, black women, regardless of whether like we identify as women, that experience of that black womanhood is similar to all of us. Yeah, yeah. I I remember I came across a line once that if we want the problems of the world solved, we should just give them to black women. Honestly, you should, because we'll get get it done. We'll get it done. And so much of what Femi was saying from whether it was like being part of like the black lesbian and gay group or being part of Harrogate Council, it was so much like someone had to do it, so we had to get it done. And so much of that you still see today in like community organising or whether it's like organising for spaces for like black people. When you go to like who's organizing the DJs, who's organizing these like safe spaces. It's like black women behind like the social media accounts. It's just like the arena has changed. It's Mm. just all online now and we're all tapping away. Do you feel, or did you feel that some of the battles and the fights that Femi was fighting from, have they changed significantly? I think we're still fighting just to be recognized within like queer spaces, but also within our, our own like spaces, whether it is like black spaces or Nigerian spaces, because we are seeing like a rise in like deep conservatism in a lot of our communities. And so a lot of the things Femi was talking about, while they look different today, they still exist. And I recall in the 1980s, the period that we're kind of reflecting on, that many of us fell into activism and it's become, you know, a brand today. So where does activism sit with young people today? I think it's interesting. And I think Femi and I touched on this and around like just the identity of activism or like an activist. And I, Femi was very proud to be like, I am an activist and I've been like an activist for most of my career, which I think is so amazing to know exactly what lane you're in. Because I think I struggle to know exactly what I'm doing or whether I'm worthy of the title activist. And I also think because it's such a broad term, I don't know if it speaks to what I'm doing. And then there's also the larger point that sometimes a lot of people my age, just like older, use it as like a brand identity. So activism as a career isn't necessarily towards building a better world because you need everything to be crap in order to make your coin. (laughs) And so you then like start to question a lot of these like activist influences and whether or not they're actually trying to build a better world or they're relying on everything being quite awful in order for them to sell like another book. Um, And I'm not saying all of them do that, but sometimes you have to ask like, are you for the community or are you for like the clout? And that comes with a lot. And so I think that's probably why I distance myself from the term activist. And also now that I don't do quite a lot of like forward facing work, and I tend to do a lot of like the background work. I do a lot of teaching, facilitating with young people in order to get them on the stage. It feels less activisty and more organizer. So I prefer the word organizer or facilitator. But then Femi was also saying like the work we do is activism. Why should we be ashamed of calling ourselves that? And that kind of made me think that maybe I need to rethink why I call myself the things I do. Yeah. I think there is something there about reclaiming mm. the word, the term, 
the feeling of mm. being an activist. And I, I've spoken to some young people who have kind of rejected the word, although they are activists, <laughs> they are making huge change. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, for me, it's not necessarily always about what we call it, it's about what we do. Mm -hmm. And being in a position to call out those who aren't doing, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's also really interesting because I've recently been interviewing people for my organisation and a lot of our questions are about, like, social justice. Like, mm. does everyone have, a, like, the same understanding and language? And a lot of the people I've interviewed have been like, well, I've never really done any social justice work, but I was, you know, fundraising for my church when I was 16. And you have to be like, that's activism or like, oh, I've never done social justice, but I've, you know, been youth working for like my local youth service for, since I was like a really small child and I volunteer there every week. Or no, I don't do social justice, but I work my food bank every week. And it's like, that's all social justice. That's all activism. That's all organizing. But people are like, oh no, it's not getting on a stage and speaking to 5,000 people. So I can't be an activist. So I think there is something to be said about reclaiming the word or just redefining what we think is activism. Because in order for like any social change to happen, we need people to be doing the fundraisers. We need people to be doing the community organizing of their churches. We need people to be working at their local food banks. Because like those service use type of jobs are so important and they might not be glamorous, but they're so deeply powerful. So I just want to ask you, so you've had this great conversation. What impact do you think that's going to have on your work going forward and your activism? <laughs> I mean, so many things. I think, first of all, it was just, and I think I said this at the beginning, it's so comforting just to be the work I'm doing or the thoughts I've had about my identity and the 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 part I play within it. I've, I'm not the only one who's felt that. Mm. So it was kind of really nice to be met with an older black woman and be like, I've been their kid, don't worry. <laughs> and that is like that feeling of being held that I think a lot of like, a lot of queer people, specifically queer people of colour, don't get that intergenerational like feeling of being held. Also, Femi was like, make sure to take pictures of everything you do. Because <laughs> in 20 years, you'll be back here like, why didn't I record it? So I am taking pictures of everything and all my friends, all my family. So it sounds like a really rich, rewarding, impactful conversation that you had with Femi. And I'm so glad you got to connect. Was there anything that was challenging that came out of the conversation for you at all? I think it was... There are bits of it that we disagreed on and I think we, we touched on this. I believe that freedom is inevitable and she said it's not and that's why we must continue to work. And it kind of like challenged me to ask myself why I believe the things I believe. And I don't believe like we have to live in an echo chamber where we where we all agree with the same things. But I think it's really important just to like, question yourself of like why I'm only like, I've only been doing this for what, 10 years. Mm. And here's someone who's been doing it for so much longer than me. Maybe I should learn from their wisdom or just like their, like their experiences. I also don't necessarily would have gone the same like strategy that Femi would have done with Section 28, right? I don't necessarily believe in local governance. I don't think it could be useful, but also like maybe sometimes it is. The plurality of strategy is so deeply important. So I'm, I don't know, I need to like sit with myself, read some more maybe, and be like, what is it that I believe and why do I believe it? Femi has been doing activism for a really long time. And as an activist myself, you can get burnt out and you mm -hmm. can get tired, and but you still keep fighting. Did Femi giving you any tips for self-care and <laughs> making sure you can stay in the game? Because we need you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for saying that. Because sometimes I don't know if we believe that ourselves. Um, it wasn't necessarily what Femi had said, but kind of like in order for Femi to still be doing 
like what she is doing after all this time. It was kind of this this idea of like she said like we have to name the people who've come before us. And when we were looking at the photos, she was like trying to remember the people who were there. And, she, and we were talking about like radical archiving and how like memory is so deeply important, as we've seen like on the Instagram. And she said something. She, she was like, it's not just about like you know archiving for archiving sakes, but sometimes we just need to celebrate ourselves. And I was like, you're so right, because <laughs> too often we celebrate people after they've passed, mm-hmm. but like we should be celebrating the people when they're still here. And Femi was like, when so much of the world is like trying to bring you down, whether it's through like homophobia, racism, or it's from your like family, where it's from like like a community that you thought should like hold you in, but they don't because of racism. Sometimes you need to find your people and to celebrate. And that is something that I'm like, that is so right. That is so true. So I will be at the club this weekend celebrating. <laughs> you see, I mean, I've always believed that the reason that I got through activism and all the dark times was getting on the dance floor. It's so let's the do only that. remedy, it's the only cure. I've been your host, Mark Thompson. The reporter in this episode was Fope Ajanaku. You can find the picture we've discussed in today's episode and all the images talked about throughout this podcast on Instagram at Black and Gay Back in the Day. And drop us a message if you have something you want to submit to the archive. A link will be available in the show notes. Coming up next week on Black and Gay Back in the Day... And the fact that his finger, his index finger is pointed directly down, kind of creating a line of power all the way down to his shoes and his feet, which are together. It makes me think of the magician tarot card. Black and Gay, Back in the Day, is an Aunt Nell production based on the archive created by myself and Jason Okendeo. It was produced by Shivani Darve and Tash Walker, The assistant producer is Abby McIntosh. Mixing was by Adam Smith. The music was composed and performed by Amaroon. Artwork was by Kemi Oliade. The executive producers were Mark Thompson and the Aunt Nell team. Thanks to Content is Queen, The Glass House, The Audio Content Fund, Gadio, Bishopsgate Institute and all of our contributors. A special thank you to all of those past and present who have fought for black queer liberation. like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment look younger feel like you add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with juvederm voluma xc reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with juvederm volure xc For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. 
There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.